As we prepare for God's word today, let's uh, again pray together. Father God, um, our hearts cry out today. We cry out to you as one who is indeed holy. Uh, to you, Jesus, who is our King. Uh, that indeed you would meet the needs of people that we know uh, with the virus. People that we know who are on the front lines of fighting the virus. And uh, in all of that, ask, oh God, that you would miraculously provide cures and ways to curb this virus, even to eliminate it. Uh, we are absolutely dependent on you. And so for these things, um, we ask. And we ask that today, God, as well as we enter into your word, that it would be a place of encouragement, that it would be a place um, of inspiration, uh, that it would be a place in which we are again reminded of the great truths of your love, of your sovereignty, of your majesty. We pray that it would be so. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go out on a limb today, take a real big risk. Are you ready? Uh, the limb that I'm going out on, the risk that I'm taking is to say that you all know something about living life in tension. Okay, so it wasn't a big limb, it wasn't a big risk. The reality is, is all of us feel at times, maybe especially in a time like this, the pulls uh, in multiple directions uh, on us physically, emotionally, and even spiritually. Listen, even before the coronavirus, many of you could relate to life intention, correct? Uh, there's been financial tensions. There are relational tensions. E even at times of crisis, spiritual tensions. So many of you have read books, listened to podcasts, surfed the internet, talked to your pastor to discover how to live a less stressed life, to try to eliminate the tensions in our life. Then came the coronavirus. <laughs> and even if you could not relate to tension in life before, you certainly can now. And if you had tension before, it seems as if that tension has taken a significant climb and maybe for some of you has escalated through the roof. Uh, we do have a ton of questions in our mind about this virus and, and we're getting a myriad of uh, answers from a myriad of different places that is sometimes overwhelming. We worry every time we cough we wonder about the impact that this will have, not only on our health, but our finances. We wonder about what life is going to be like after the virus, what changes will take place, on and on. And even, listen, even to the spiritual questions of wondering, what is God doing in all of this? We live in tension, and it has caused many of us, as we've just done, to cry out to God. We want Him to somehow save us from all of this. You with me? Well, can I tell you something that you already know, that we are not the first generation, the first people to feel intense tension in life. In fact, I've been, I've been thinking about this week, uh, the, the tension in the lives of the people that lined the streets in Jerusalem as Jesus prepared to come to town. Those who gathered were predominantly 
servants, slaves, uh, owned and operated by someone else with the tension of wanting to be free. They would be people that lived under the rule and the reign of the Roman government who was determined to keep them in poverty and under their control. They must have had a million concerns for them as well as their families. They must have lived in despair of ever having any kind of future. They must have had a bunch of questions for a God who in these days seemed a long, long long ways away. But they had heard of this Jesus. In fact, in, in John chapter 12, verse 18, it tells us that the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he, Jesus, had raised this guy Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, in this day, was the first sign of hope that they had had in a long time, a first sign that maybe the tension would be released. So they ran to the streets, they hailed Jesus as king, and they cried out, even as we cry out today, save us. They said, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they had reason to hope in this Jesus, because you know what? Their generation wasn't the first generation to live in tension. They may have remembered the story of David an Old Testament hero, an Old Testament king. And, and maybe even as they remembered David, they would even remember the hope of a song that he wrote in a time of tension. A song that he wrote for a people that would live for a, a long time in, in the tension of waiting for one who would come to save them. That song is a psalm. And if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we have been approaching Easter in the Psalms this year, and this morning I want us to take a look at Psalm 110. It is this psalm that is a song that David writes for a people in tension. So it's there that we turn this Palm Sunday, that as we echo the hosannas of the people of Jerusalem in the days of Jesus, and we ask God to save us, uh, we might even have a better understanding of their hope from the words of David, who simply wrote about a king. Uh, first, I, I want you to imagine the tensions of David's life, and uh, who, as he writes, is likely the king of Israel. Uh, David has faced the tensions of being pursued in order to be killed by King Saul. He has faced the tension of radical and public sin in life, that whole Bathsheba and then Uriah thing. He has faced the tension of extreme brokenness in his family that has led to immorality and even murder. He has faced the tension as a leader in a world where the nations were all seeking to destroy him as he defended Israel. He has obviously felt the tension of questions about his God. David knew tension. But it appears that as he writes Psalm 110, there is a hope, not only of God's presence in his life, but even more the hope of a coming king, greater than he. That, that a thousand years before Jesus would come, God is making it clear to David that he would. And that he would come to rule, that he would come to gather his people 
and that he would come to bring victory. That indeed, there was a king coming to save us. So maybe, maybe this is a good place to hang out this Palm Sunday. So let's look together at Psalm 110, a psalm that all clearly identify as a psalm that is about Jesus. It's called a, a messianic psalm. And it is the most, get this, this is some free trivia for you today, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, even in its very short ways. It is a psalm that assures us, listen, here's our three points for this morning, it assures us that Jesus rules, that he actively is gathering his people, and that as he does so, he will win a great victory. Ultimately, this psalm in a sentence, I try to do that for you, is a very short sentence. It's more just of a, a proclamation that this psalm is declaring that Jesus is king. Psalm 110. Let's uh, turn to the word. I hope you have your copy of God's word that we might read together. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Uh, may God help us in the understanding of his word. First thought today from this psalm and this proclamation that Jesus is king is this. I want you to consider first the rule, the rule of King Jesus. Uh, there's been much made of the opening phrase of this psalm, the, the Lord says to my Lord. What does that mean? It, uh, it almost sounds as like if God is trying to talk to himself. But there are two distinct names given to God here. It is Lord Jehovah says to my Lord Adonai. Uh, it is a text, a, a verse that is uh, quoted in three of the four Gospels as a proof text that Jesus truly is the Son of God, and it is a statement that is theologically rich. But for this morning, this is all I want you to see in that text, in that statement that the Lord says to my Lord. I want you to see this, that God the Father says to God the Son, in an amazing conversation, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I get this, that in no particular space and time that God declares that he, Jesus, rules everything. And that Jesus in his role it will indeed join God in his rule. He proclaims that Jesus is king. Uh, Jesus is not just king when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's not king just when he rises from the dead. He's not king just when he ascends into heaven. 
Those are things that we think of as we come to this verse, that, that at that right hand where God is uh, seated Jesus, that this is at the ascension. But I say, hey, there's no space and time for this. It's not just when he ascends to heaven. Jesus, listen, this is the point. Jesus has always been king. I hear in verse 2 that God declares the authority of this King Jesus. He says, his scepter, his instrument of authority, goes forth from Zion, and Jesus rules. He is king, and he says, even in the midst of his enemies. I want you to get this. God is not promising, with Jesus being king, God is not promising unicorns and lollipops. He here tells, foretells, the reality of an ongoing enemy. Twice, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Listen, God is saying that with King Jesus and him on his throne, it is not all unicorns and lollipops. Everything is not going to be just perfect. There is an enemy. There is a reality of brokenness. There's a reality of natural disasters, like a coronavirus. But listen, it is not a sign that Jesus has lost his rule. That even in the midst of enemies, Jesus is king. Jesus rules. Days after Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd... That crowd turned against him, leaving but a handful of people cowering in a room as his followers. But listen, Jesus, even crucified alone on a cross, is still king. Jesus doesn't need anyone to declare him king to be king. Listen, he is king. And even on the cross, alone, deserted, he is king. On the cross, Jesus still reigned. The sign above him may have been meant to mock him. The sign above him may have been meant to accuse him. But I'm telling you, the sign that read, King of the Jews proclaimed truth. The crowds disappeared. They yelled, crucify him, because they didn't get that the king, they didn't get the king they thought they needed. The enemy seemed to win, but it is because they lost sight that an eternal king reigns in ways that we might not understand, that we might not get. You hear that? An eternal king reigns in ways that we might not understand, that we might not get, but he is still King, hear that today. In, in whatever tension you live, God declares it to David in tension, and he reminds us today in the tension in which we live, even for us to hear in the midst of a very scary virus, that Jesus, hear me, reigns as king. Abraham Kuyper is known for a saying, uh, that is often repeated. He says, There is not a square inch of planted earth where Jesus Christ doesn't say, Mine. 
What Kuiper is saying is that every square inch of planet Earth, and for that matter, the universe, Jesus knows and is king. Another really famous author, philosopher, brilliant guy named Rick Stopper says this, there is not a millisecond of time in all of eternity that Jesus doesn't say, I've got this. There's not a millisecond in all of eternity that Jesus doesn't say, I've got this. The rule of Jesus as king is an eternal truth, a truth in good times and a truth in hard times. May we not simply be looking for a king that fits our needs, but may we entrust our lives and our tensions to a king who rules with authority, who sits at the right hand of God. And secondly, may we see in that that his rule is gathering his people. Get this, his rule is gathering his people. Go to verse 3 in this text and, and hear, hear the poetry here. He says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. That's pretty, isn't it? That's great poetry. But what the heck does it mean? It's a good question. Can I skip to the chase with you all? Here's the point of verse 3. That as Jesus rules, listen, he frees us to follow. As Jesus rules, he frees us to follow. I want you to think of Pentecost for a moment as an illustration, right? The, the power of God falls on the disciples to do amazing things. There's fire on their heads. They're speaking in tongues. These uneducated men are saying astounding and remarkable and marvelous things. Even Peter stands up to preach, and he preaches an amazing sermon. But, but even more, the Holy Spirit falls on the people of God. And what does it say? 3,000 people get it. 3,000 people get saved. They are given eyes to see, and they say this, What must I do to be saved? It's like a preacher's dream, right? Listen, this is not evidence of the power of the disciples or the power of Peter's preaching. What it is evidence of is the power of Jesus as king. And as king, he is gathering his people. That as a result of the kingship of Jesus, the people offer themselves freely in holiness, in holy garments. Heck, th think, of your, think of your own salvation, or even the salvation of someone that you had the privilege to share with and watch them come to Jesus. Was it because someone was so convincing? No, listen, it was a direct result of a king who says, this one is mine. When he led Stoffer to, to Jesus, when, when he led Stoffer to himself, he said, this one is mine. And in my authority, I gather him up. In my authority, King Jesus is gathering his people. And he's telling David, as he is telling us, that he's still in this business of gathering his people. That just as the dew, get this, just as the dew falls from the womb of the morning, so is King Jesus gathering his people. We've had some heavy dews, some heavy frosts, and you, you see the reality of all of the droplets, and all Jesus is saying is, listen, as I rule as king, Part of my rule is that I'm gathering my people. What is he gathering them for? 
Well, this text goes on to say that he's gathering them in order that he might be their priest. As fascinating as this whole uh, in the order of Melchizedek thing is, which is quite fascinating, I encourage you maybe to look at it on your own. I'm going to kind of bypass the Melchizedek thing just to, just to focus on Jesus' intentional gathering of his people. Listen, that he might be their priest. What does it mean that Jesus is our priest? Well, more of this on Friday night at our Good Friday service. But get this, as king, Jesus is going to exercise his right as king to be the ultimate priest who makes sacrifice for our sins. And we get this at Easter, don't we? He not only is the priest, but he actually becomes the sacrifice. He dies for the people that he has gathered. Hmm. And this is where it gets really cool, and even somewhat practical, that as the gathered people of King Jesus, we are forgiven by priest Jesus, and we follow that Jesus with joy. Listen again, as the gathered people of King Jesus, who priest Jesus has paid the price for, we now follow this Jesus with joy. Think Pentecost again, right? In a time when there was a, a real and def definite threat to being killed for being a Christ follower, 3,000 people rushed the stage to, to, to be one, to be a Christian. That's incredible. And, and then with joy, they put their lives at risk to tell the world. And they say things like this, like, to live as Christ and to die is gain, the Apostle Paul says, right? So, so they're proclaiming that, that their life was a gathered person of Jesus is is more important than their own physical life. That they are free at that point to follow Jesus. Way too often, listen, way too often we have been duped into thinking that the rule of Jesus is a burden that we must somehow carry. Oh, silly me, I'm a Christian, I've got to live this life. And kind of Eeyore-ish, right? The reality that we... And we've been duped to think that, that being a Christian actually is carrying this, this burden. Listen, we need to repent of that. No, I'm serious. We need to repent of it. We must turn the other way. The rule of Christ does not gather his people to place a burden on them, but rather the rule of Christ gathers his people to give them freedom. Freedom from the bondage of their sin and freedom to live as a living sacrifice for their king. Christ, as king, has gathered you up, Christian, and he has freed you as your priest forever that we might follow him and follow him in joy. One last thought as we finish this song. Jesus rules as king to gather his people, listen, to give them victory. To give them victory. Can I be so bold to share with you that I believe that one of the things that Jesus, that King Jesus is doing as king in the midst of the coronavirus is gathering his people in order to show them true victory. In order to show them true victory. And by that, I don't, I don't believe that they are somehow protected from the virus. I think that would be too short-sighted. It's what we should pray, but I still don't think it's all that God is doing. 
that we just not simply be protected from the virus, but that he might, listen, that King Jesus might reveal to us, to others, that he is king of all things. To reveal that in the midst of the tension of this virus, that Jesus is the Lord at our right hand. That's what verse 5 says. The Lord is at your right hand. And then he goes on. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And the language here in the psalm seems a bit violent. It kind of makes us a bit uncomfortable at times. But I want you to realize two things in, in regard to that. One, first is this. Victory in the day of David was violent. <laughs> as he obediently defended the land that's been promised to him by God. But secondly, the violence of the psalm indicates that even the battle that we wage against our enemy of ongoing sin, which is, which is ultimately the victory that Jesus wins, needs to be a violent one. Way too often, we allow sin to linger and just be a friendly foe. Something that we love way too much and return to way too often. When in the scripture, we are told as we were reminded of this in Colossians, just in that last sermon series, that we are to put our sin to death. It's a, it's a violent reality of dealing with our sin. That the victory that Jesus has given us empowers us, listen, to shatter the king of our pride. He allows us to execute judgment on our greed and to gather up the corpse of our lust and to win victory over our sin. Listen, in a day that we would love to see the victory of God over the coronavirus, right? Not one of us that wouldn't love to see God miraculously with some strong wind or something, right? A, a, a big sanitary wipe, clean up the world <laughs> and rid it of coronavirus. We still know this, that as we walk these days, even the very sad and hard days, that King Jesus has the power not only to deliver us from a virus, that's short-sighted, but even death itself. You hear that? It's right to pray that the virus goes away, but even more, recognize that the victory that we will have will be far greater than any virus. The victory that we have in King Jesus is victory over our sin, sin that leads to death. And that victory, victory brings us life. This week I received word that a colleague of mine in the EPC, Tim Russell, uh, even more a, a friend of mine who served as a chaplain at Geneva College when I was there, that had died from the coronavirus. Um, lives in Memphis, Tennessee, is on the staff of Second Presbyterian Church there. Uh, you can pray for his wife and his family. Uh, some might see this and say that the virus won in Tim's life, that he has suffered some kind of defeat. But we know that's not so. Uh, Tim Russell loved Jesus. If you've ever met Big Tim Russell, who would hug you and you'd get lost in his hug, right? That would had this discerning sense that something was wrong or something was good and would speak to it boldly. Great lover of God and a proclaimer of the gospel. 
Tim Russell loved Jesus and, listen, as a gathered one of King Jesus, we know that as sad as it is to lose him from this earth, that he has won his final, he has won his eternal battle with victory in heaven. And it is King Jesus who has won that victory. And listen, that's just not a spiritual platitude that makes us feel better about losing Tim. That victory is truth. The very truth that I believe this psalm speaks of. The very truth that we are free to proclaim. And I hope you know that truth. I hope you know King Jesus. That you know yourself as a gathered one of his people. And that you know that he's working a great victory in your life. I read this the other day. The world may be turned upside down. All human institutions may be subverted. All human friendships sundered. And all hell seem to be let loose against the saints. But... God and his Christ with their infinite plans and glorious purposes are the same from age to age. No matter what this world hands us, we know that King Jesus is on his throne. Calvin likewise has said this, What times our minds are agitated by various commotions, let us learn confidently to repose, old language here, to, to lean on this support, that however much the world may rage against Christ, it will never be able to hurl him from the right hand of the Father. God says, King Jesus will win. Uh, verse 7 says it poetically in our text, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. You know what that means? It's a glorious poetic way of saying Jesus wins. He says he will win, and he will. In fact, we have confidence of this today. Jesus has won. A king, Jesus, rules. And he rules to gather and save his people in order that he might give them victory. So today... Know that if you are a child of God, it may be that we still have tensions in our lives. And in this day and age, to know that those tensions of coronavirus are significant. But even more know this. They are under the rule of Christ. That we trust is gathering his people to reveal to them a great victory this Easter. And listen, maybe you're listening today and you're unsure of your walk with Jesus. Now would be a great opportunity, right? A simple opportunity for you to pray and, and ask King Jesus to be that in your life. That you would surrender your life to the ruling of him as king. To know that you are then a part of the gathered people and that you have all to look forward to the great victory that he is working in your life. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory that brings eternal life. Just take a moment after this recording or even now to bow your head. To receive him as Lord, as Savior, as King.
into your life. Uh, one last thought from this psalm. Uh, John Piper has wisely said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us. He, he gets glory for himself in us when we are most satisfied, content in him. And I think that's the aim of this psalm that comes from God. Uh, for David in, in the tensions of his life, for the people that stood in the tensions of Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, and for us in these tense days of this virus. May we be a people satisfied in King Jesus, people of peace, people of hope, people of power, a people that glorify God as we find ourselves satisfied, satisfied in the fact that Jesus is King, that he's gathering his people, and that he's winning his victory. Satisfied in knowing that Jesus is your King, who has gathered you as his people and is winning your victory. That he would be glorified in our lives as we are satisfied in his reign as king. May it be. Let's pray. Father God, we indeed take time and we ask that uh, we invite you to be king of our hearts. That indeed we would... Uh, Today, surrender our lives in trust to you, not just with a virus that is literally plaguing our nation and our world, but in all things, our fears, our anxieties, our doubts, our questions. Maybe more than anything, God, that you would reveal today your son who sits at your right hand as king of our lives. That we get it as your gathered people. And together we would indeed look forward to our greatest victory, eternal victory, with you in heaven. May it be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.